Instead, we have to go, okay, I can't see it right now, but I'm going to choose to believe. And it's easier to choose to believe when it feels like it's easy to believe and you have permission to believe, which is why we must stay in that state of wonder. So how do we stay in in that state of wonder? By staying aware of the magic that is all around us. Roald Dahl famously said, those who don't believe in magic will never find it. It affirms what I'm talking about. A lot of people will say, well, I don't see any magic. So you show me some magic and then I'll believe in it. Well, the magic is already there. The problem with your inability to see it is because you don't believe in it first. Hello, friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show where I talk with people who are trying to live a meaningful life. People who give a damn. My guest this week is Harris III. Harris began his career at a young age traveling the world as an award-winning professional illusionist. Harris has performed for and spoken live to millions of people in dozens of countries all around the world. A series of unfortunate events led Harris on a decade-long journey to understand the stories we tell ourselves and how they drive all human behavior. Since then, Harris has created some pretty incredible things. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Wonder Switch, a book about the difference between limiting your life and living your dream, and we spend a large chunk of our time today talking about this book. Harris has also created the Wonder Mindset Masterclass, the annual Story Conference, Transformation Theory, and so much more. Harris, like me, always seems to have 47 and a half plates spinning in the air, and he does a hell of a job keeping them all spinning. During our chat, we talk about faith and failure and how impossible is just an opinion, how flying solo is just a myth, and how worry is a misuse of our imagination, and so much more. Before we jump into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can, anytime, and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Harris III. Let's go. Super excited to have Harris III on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. Welcome, Harris. Thank you, sir. It's good to be with you finally. Yes. We see each other like, what, once a year, not the, not counting this pandemic year, but we run into each other at something, right? Yeah, um, all the time. Yeah. The last thing I saw you at was, and we'll we'll get to that at some point in the show, uh, is this documentary you made, uh, mm. Counterfeit, right? Um, which was, which was tremendous. And I saw, I saw the, the, the premiere, I guess it's called. And, uh, uh, that was such a great night, but yeah, I, I, when I first moved to Nashville, uh, four ish years ago, you were somebody that came up over and over again, as people were saying, as people were, you know, opening their, their Rolodexes, as it were saying, you know, who, who you should meet, who you need to get, you know, get in touch with, who you need to know in this city, your name kept coming up over and over wow. and over again. So, you know, I that's a, that part of the story. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a testament totally. to, you know, who you are and what you're doing in this city. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of crazy stuff in the city. Right. But, um, the people that I was around when I said, Hey, who should I meet? Like introduce me to people like your mm-hmm. name kept, keep kept coming up. So that's, that's good. Good for you that you're working in a way that people are like, Hey, you need to know Harris. Yeah, um, thanks, man. That's incredible. Yeah. What part of town do you live in? The same in Forest, Forest Hills now. So we just moved from East Nashville to Forest Hills. 
kind of north of Brentwood next to Green Hills. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we, our kids were very close to getting run over by bird scooters multiple times oh, yeah. uh, at our old place. Uh, so yeah, we just wanted to get them some space so they could run around and have a little bit more of a childhood similar to mine, which is what I wanted from them. So we're a little bit more spread out now on some land with a big forest behind our house. So they finally got their tree house and trails and, uh, yeah, they're having a blast. I've seen you post from time to time at the new place and it looks, yeah, it looks amazing. Right. And very not East Nashville. -ish. <laughs> um, I remember where your office was in East Nashville was the house close to there. Did you yeah. guys live close to the office? Yeah. It's a busy yeah. part of town where, I mean, a lot of, it was, it was South enough on uh main street, not main street, uh, Gallatin that there's still a lot of tourists that are walking around and doing stuff. Totally. And just people It's not really a neighborhood, right? Cause a lot of transient people coming through. It's a different kind of neighborhood, but you're exactly. not, if you're, if you're looking for that, like sitting on your front porch, waving at people that, you know, that's not going to happen. It's a, <laughs> it's a whole, whole we were excited. To, we were excited to be there, you know, cause we could walk, we were on West Eastland, which was kind of a main thoroughfare. So people would get off a major parkway to come into East Nashville through our street and just, I mean, cars flying at like 65 miles per hour with cars parked on both sides of the street. Yeah. Like, and kids outside running around, not a lot of kids, mostly just my kids, but yeah, it got, it got a little crazy at times. And we loved that we could walk to Barista Parlor or Moss Tacos or, you know, walk to the end of the street and grab a burger from the pharmacy. But um, yeah, it was, it was a really fun chapter of our lives and there's certain things that we miss about it. Um, and it was just, we were ready for more space. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you got it. So let's talk about this. Let's start with uh, just this last 12 months. I want to know how you're doing. <laughs> um, what you're doing and how you're doing it. Like so oh, many good. things have changed, right? You we'll get into your story here in a minute, but you went from being on the road a ton, like your, your work requires, and now we're finding out not so much, right. But still before these last 12 months, your yeah. work and my work required being in places at certain times doing yeah. things, right. So yeah. kids would see us on FaceTime and you know, my, my kids saw me for the first seven years of their lives. Uh, for a couple of them, like on FaceTime for a lot of the month. And then I'd be home, right? And really into their lives, but a lot of time was away. So this year has changed everything. Um, how are you doing? Man, I'm doing pretty well. And it depends on the day. Um, you know, I've not been asked that question recently. So it's a really good question. And I don't often know if I've done enough processing, which is, you know, even there's a conversation even in, in that. It's like, what is it about me that stays so busy that often doesn't pause long enough to check in with myself and say, how are you doing? Um, but I've tried to become more self-aware, especially over the last couple of years. It's been, um, last two years specifically as a leader have been a huge season of growth for me. And part of that is just trying to become more self-aware about who I am, what I'm really doing, mm. why am I doing the things that I'm doing and how am I doing? Um, and I think I'm doing really well. There are days where, you know, like my, my friends know me as like, I don't think they would use the phrase Mr. Positivity, but I'm, I'm kind of wide awake to wonder and I kind of have a childlike perspective on the world and just about anything is possible. And it, I'm, it's easy for me to believe in other people and the possibility of their own dreams. It's easy for me to believe in the possibility of, of my own dreams. Um, and I think with that comes this like, man, I'm good. And I'm great. Like, sure, things are hard, but we're making it work and we're getting through and we're innovating and pivoting. And, uh, you know, I'm not ruled by fear for the most part in my life. Um, I tend to launch things pretty easily and quickly. 
um, without being paralyzed by fear doesn't mean the fear doesn't exist. I just courageously do it in the face of fear. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's that doing that constantly doesn't mean that there's not a presence of other uh, emotions or feelings. I just don't pause often enough to check in with those feelings. But when I do, I feel them hard. That's what I'm learning over the last couple of months is like, and I feel like I was the guy cheering everyone on going, Hey, we can get through this. It's all going to be okay. Um, let's stay positive, not just for positivity's sake, sake, but you know, all of the science that comes along with an optimistic view on the world, you know, let's stay rooted yeah. in wonder. And then everyone's like, okay, great. And then they get through, like, I think we're on the tail end of this thing. I'm starting to feel good. I dug out of my funk. And then right around the time everyone was coming out of their funk, I think I was going into one for the first time. Mm. This is recent, only within the last few weeks or a couple of months. And I think it's just, it's like everyone was doing these little sprints and they were really tired and it was hard not to sink into some sort of negative headspace. And I think while everyone else was doing short sprints, getting bursts of encouragement, bursts of hope, I've been on like a hope marathon and now the marathon has been completed. And I'm like, holy crap, I'm really tired. And like, I'm mentally and emotionally drained. Yeah. Um, And so and I think my friend Brad called it pivot, pivot fatigue. <laughs> I think everyone's talking about Zoom fatigue. I think I just have pivot fatigue. I think it just hit me later than it hit many. And so I think many found ways to cope with it or heal from it and are finding ways to come out of it. I think I'm just now arriving at it. Does that make sense at all? Makes total sense. At the same time that I'm grateful that when this pandemic started, that I did not sit still, right? You know, the first couple months when everybody thought it was going to be a few weeks, right? Those first few weeks, everybody's talking about what, like staying home, making sourdough bread, watching Netflix, right? Like that's what everybody was talking about. I was starting new stuff this past year. I started a nonprofit fund and two, two more companies, right? Like, and it sounds like you're, you're on the same trajectory. You've been doing a lot of the same stuff. So I didn't, I didn't really, I've never been to therapy a day in my life. And that is not a good thing because I go super hard and I don't, it's not like I'm, I, I honestly don't think it's me trying to not listen to what's going on inside. I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing to do. And there's a lot to do, right? There's a lot to make. And as long as I'm good with my wife and my family, right? As long as we're in sync and they don't think that I'm working too hard and that I'm still giving them the attention and love and care that they des- deserve and more, I just keep making stuff because I don't know you know, life is so fragile and short and I want to just want to, I want to make shit. Right. But in that I did not, yeah, I've just been going super hard and I like you. So, so right around the turn of the year, cause everybody's talking about, Oh, 2021 was such a terrible or 2020 was such a terrible year. 2021 is gonna be way better. Well, we're three months in the pandemic still, it's least here in this country is looking pretty bleak still. Yes. The vaccines are coming, but there's variants and mutations and all these things that we have yet to figure out. And so I think the turn of the year, I also took on a new client. I was talking about this before the recording went on, where now for 30, you know, I added 30 hours of work a week on my previous workload, working with all these amazing scientists on this COVID project. So now every single day I'm in these conversations, not at a social media level, not at a, you know, neighbors talking with each other about how they feel, but I'm talking with the people that know what the hell they're talking about. The people that are in all the data that are just looking at all these graphs all day long and they're predicting what is going to happen, right? Or could happen. 
And so I too have been feeling it really deeply these last couple of weeks, like workload, thinking that 2020 would be different. I do believe the latter part will be, and I'm very hopeful for that, but still very much in it, right? I just had to, so I've officiated uh, four or five of my siblings' weddings so far, which has been like the biggest honor of my life. And my first sister is, I'm one of 12 kids, so that's why there's so many already. Uh, My first sister is getting married, and she asked me naturally if I would officiate, and I I felt so honored. And she asked me last year, and we thought, well, f- for sure, things are going to look different right now, right? And um, and I was, she was open to, you know, eloping, like courthouse kind of wedding, and then we'll do the big party later, or like maybe just family. And I was open to those options, just, you know, things are still pretty tense, right? But then they, they, they decided, and it's all, that's their right. I'm not speaking ill of her. I've told her this a million times, like, but, but they went ahead and invited the hundred, you know, plus people. And so I had to make the hard decision to say, I can't, I can't be there. Right. And that was so hard to process through all the intricacies of, you know, going into a different state into a bunch of different people's, you know, quarantine pods, like it, all of that is weighing right now. Right. I still feel positive. I still feel good. I'm still building a lot of stuff, but it's hard. It's hard. I think for those of us that like go super hard, when we actually, so I think of, I think of it this like this, what if I'm moving, if I'm in motion, I can work, you know, I don't, I try not to, but I could work 16 hours a day, 17 hours a day. Like I could just go, kids go to bed, wife goes to bed. I come back out to the office, do my thing for two or three more hours. But I'm at that point in the, in, in my life, in the pandemic, in the year that if I stop, like if I sit on the couch for 10 minutes, I just, my, my brain begins to shut off a little bit and I just like melted to the couch and can't even get up. Right. <laughs> Cause my, I'm, I don't feel like I'm exhausted, but my body is telling me otherwise my spirit is telling me otherwise, you know? So it's a weird, um, it's a weird time. Yeah. But I think we need that. You know, we need those pauses to remind us of how tired we are. Um, you know, I don't, we weren't wired for the hustle culture that we're surrounded by as human no. beings were. We are absolutely human beings and not human doings. Um, but I'm I'm currently still, I would say, a better human doing than I am a human being because I've I don't know that I've mastered the art or even come close to mastery of learning how to just be. Mm. And so the few little glimpses I get of just being still serve as a reminder to me um, of how much work I have to do in that area. So the times mm. that I melt into the couch, it's like Hey, this is good. Like you were designed to do this. You were made to rest and it's okay for you to pause and rest every now and then. So maybe you should do a little bit more of this more often. Yeah. So we weren't just made for that constant hustle. Um, we also so weren't true. made for the lonely hustle. And so when you combine hustling with loneliness and isolation, dude, that is a, uh, that is a really dangerous cocktail. Absolutely. And we will get to that. That is a part of our forthcoming conversation. Before we get like super into it, I'm sure many people are meeting you for the first time on this show. And I'm so grateful to be the one to introduce everyone because I think you, I want people to follow you and, you know, begin learning from you uh, from here on out. Give them some context for who you are. Who are are the important people, places, and things in your life? Where did you come from? How did you get into the kind of work that you're doing? Give us some of that context, some story context here as we begin. Oh, man. Um, I know that's a huge question. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it could take a while. So feel free to pause or tell me to f- just pull out like a remote control and you can fast forward or pause and rewind and be like, go back to that. There you go. Um, yeah. I mean, I grew up in Southeast Tennessee. So just a little bit of context was my parents had minimum wage jobs. I grew up on a, a dairy farm that was no longer in business. So I spent my weekends running around, making trails in the woods, riding my old used bike and had a pocket knife and a hatchet and uh, you know, had to bail hay on weekends. That was part of my chore uh, to feed the cows and kind of grew up in one of those type of families where like if the fence broke and the cows got out at 3 a.m., every male in the family was out of bed to go like get the cows back in, right? Every Amazing. male on the weekends during hail bail it, uh, hay baling season was out bailing and stacking hay in the barn. Um, all my family lived on the same street, on the same block, basically, kind wow. of all surrounded on the hills around each other. So you just kind of rode around in the neighborhood and went in and out of each other's houses. That was my childhood. And then when I was nine years old, um, I ended up getting a magic kit for Christmas for my grandmother. Not at all what I was interested in, did not ask for a magic kit, was not fascinated by the art of magic or illusion in any way whatsoever. It was super random from my perspective. And so the gift that I, never asked for or wanted ended up completely changing the trajectory of my life. Seriously. So I, I didn't see a lot of possibility. It wasn't really much of a dreamer at that age. I'd kind of settled for the status quo, kind of felt like my cards had been dealt, like this was my life in this small town, um, in a blue collar family. And man, when, when I did my first trick, uh, it was actually kind of funny because when I learned my first trick, I was like, that's it. That's dumb. No one is ever going to be fooled by this. Right. And I marched into the living room to prove that I was right. Uh, performed my first trick for my mom and dad and dude, their eyes lit up. They were in complete awe and wonder their chins dropped. They're like, Whoa, how did you just do that? And I was like, are you serious? And they're like, how did you do that? It was amazing. And now looking back, I understand it was the first time that someone else had looked at me with a look of awe and wonder in response to something that I had done, or at least that I could remember, right? I'm sure that at some point they were like, yeah, you like you just peed in a toilet by yourself, right? Sure. Like you're out of diapers now. There were times that I got celebrated, but you know, I don't have memories of that. So as I kind of get into the age where I can remember things easily from my childhood, six, seven, eight, I was already starting to get bullied at school. I wasn't the cool kid. I sucked at sports. I wasn't athletic. And so it was hard for me to to experience those moments of someone being in awe of me just didn't come around very often. And all of a sudden they were. And now that I've studied the neuroscience of awe and wonder, I understand how contagious it is. But at the time, all I knew is that someone was in awe and that something was awakened in me. But what was actually happening is that their wonder reawakened mine and it gave me permission to believe in the possibility of a whole new story. So that was the beginning of a new chapter for me. Um, took me a couple of years to kind of keep learning magic tricks. Um, finally found like a couple of mentors and uh, started performing really young. Uh, I, my first show was at 11, my first official show, got paid 25 bucks. Wow. I, I was like, this is it. I'm like, I'm going to be rich and famous and travel around the world doing magic shows. Um, and if you fast forward within a few short years, um, you know, it was, I, I experienced what felt like the highest of highs as a teenager and the lowest of lows, um, you know, experienced everything from childhood abuse with mentors mm. to making six figures. So like you take those things and you put in the context of a, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 year old kid. I remember sitting down at my kitchen table 
uh, with my parents and them explaining to me, I, I have this memory of them going, well, you cleared six figures this year and explaining to me that that's more money than they had ever made in two years with their salaries combined. Because again, my dad worked in a factory. My mom was a housekeeper. Wow. And me just going like, okay, like it felt like I had lots of money, but it's not like they were permitting me to just go spend it on stuff yet. Right. Like I was still a kid. So we were reinvesting it back into my business. Um, and at the same time, you know, I have these stories of this intense abuse as a child. I'm trying to make sense of that, but the whole time as a magician, I'm being taught the value of secrecy. And so I just did what really good magicians do, which is kept everything a secret. And so you have this, you know, again, what looks like really, uh, a really awesome life as a teenager combined with what feels like hell on earth of carrying around this burden of this untold story that's inside of you. So fast forward, I uh, just kept doing what I was doing. By the time I was 18, I performed all across the US. I dropped out of high school to go on the road and tour full time. Um, ended up finishing high school by way of a homeschooling program that I did on the road. By 21, I made a million dollars. Um, left my little small town, moved to Nashville to an expensive suburb and built a big fancy house and parked two nice cars in the driveway. And I was like, this is it, the American dream. Mm. And by 22, I was bankrupt. Um, and really that, that, that season of going from 21 to 22, I think that was the inciting incident that led to me finding, it was really like the beginning of the path that I'm on today, the path back towards healing of coming to terms with who I am, not just as a performer uh, or a storyteller, but who am I, who is, who is Harris as a human being? Um, and I had to ask some pretty serious questions about what life is all about. Cause when you go from a million, from being a millionaire at 21 to being bankrupt by 22, it sort of humbles you and forces yeah. you to step back and go, okay, how did this happen? And I had to figure out how it happened and realize that, you know, I'd been tricked into believing a whole bunch of stuff that isn't true. And those lies had quite literally trapped me and paralyzed my life. And, um, I had to find a way to escape that and get out of it. What were some of the factors? Uh, I mean, you don't have to get into like tremendous detail, but 21 millionaire, 22 bankrupt. Like what happened in that year? Was it just sure. uh, diving into the lifestyle, frivolous yeah. spending, yeah. just like thinking it was going to never end and then it did? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, and it didn't really end. Like I made just as much money the year I was 22 as I made, you know, in the years leading up to 21. Uh, it's that I moved to an expensive suburb, built a big fancy house. Um, I bought two nice cars. I didn't pay cash for them. And even though I had cash, like this, dude, this is crazy. I, I, I specifically remember this guy coming to the front door going, Hey, has anyone tested your water? I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, we're just out doing water tests to, you know, test the cleanliness of your water out of your tap. And I'm like, well, no, I don't think so. And he comes in, does this little test in our kitchen. And he was a water like filtration and water softener salesman, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he goes through the whole thing and he holds up the two capsules and one's dirty after he put the chemicals in it. One's not, I'm just like, oh no. And he's like, well, your neighbor's just installed. I'm like, well, if they did it, we've got to do it. I'm like, how much? And he's like, you know, like four grand or something. And I'm like, great, let me go get my checkbook. And specifically remember him hearing him say, you don't have to write a check, we can finance it. And me going, great, I can spend that $4,000 on something else. Wow. And so it was the classic case of keeping up with the Joneses. And it doesn't matter how much money you make. It's, it's never enough if you keep reaching for the illusion of more. And I discovered in that season that some people are so poor, all they have is money. And so my bank account, account made me look rich for a time. Um, but yeah, it didn't take long for it to all catch up with me. So what, so the, this, this 
crazy year 21 to 22 began this uh change in your life uh take us on the next like phase of your life from there on what did it look like to get to i mean yeah bridge the gap between then and uh now yeah yeah i started making less money for a while uh after that Uh, and the reason why is you know when i asked myself how i ended up in that position when I discovered that I had believed some lies about myself that weren't true and lies about how the world worked in general, um, you know, that, that sort of pisses you off and you're like, oh, how did I get tricked into believing this stuff? Well, that is, that's a pretty ironic question to ask yourself when the way that you have quote unquote succeeded is through your mastery of the ability to trick other people. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed is that there is a strong correlation between how a magician the principles that a magician uses to trick people on stage in the context of a magic show and how all lies and deception work. Um, you know, the, the only difference between what we call a magician or a marketer or advertiser or a great leader or a salesman or a politician or a con man is just the motivation behind how they're using the principles of persuasion and psychology, mm. right? If someone uses those same principles that I use as a magician to help people, and to change the world, we're like, that person's a great leader. They're a brilliant marketer. If I use those same principles to pick your pockets or to con you, you might be like, that guy's a con man. Well, both people are using the exact same skill sets. The motive behind how they're using those principles of deception and persuasion are just different. And so once I uncovered the fact that I understood how deception worked and it just didn't connect the dots and realized that the principles are universal and they apply to more than just magic tricks. It led to all these epiphanies. And I was like, man, I have the greatest tool in the world to go help people understand how they have been led and tricked into believing the things that they believe. And so kind of took on a more uh, mission-minded approach to my craft, became less of an entertainer, more of a speaker, I guess, for lack of a better words. And, you know, I did that for a few years in my mid twenties, I was at this school in Michigan uh, and there, there was principal walks in. He's like, Hey, you're the magician. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, you understand how to trick people. Like go help these kids understand how they're getting tricked into believing the things that they believe. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm really a motivational speaker, and if I, but I can definitely say something about that probably. Um, but I still wasn't like confident in how to do those types of things. Um, and I remember getting out of a straitjacket at the end of that show and it was one of the first times I'd, I'd, I'd gotten out of a straitjacket hundreds of times, but it was the first time that I remember being as raw and vulnerable uh, based on the challenge of, from this principle to be just super honest with these high school kids about some of the straitjackets that had trapped and entangled me and opened up about, you know, being molested as a kid, going through, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and how I was trying to dig my way out of it, all these different straitjackets. And how they were all rooted in lies. And I just remember like holding up the straight jacket and saying, I don't know what your straight jacket is, but we all have one. And I want you to know there's always hope. Like, don't give up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever given a bad talk. Uh, that's how I felt about that day. And I was beating myself up. And I was like, that was a horrible attempt. You should have just stuck to being an entertainer. You should have just been a magician. Like, what was this whole like motivational speech at the end? And then, as all the kids are filing out and I'm mentally like beating myself up for the bad job I feel I did. There was this girl that starts walking down the bleachers towards me and she's bawling. She has tears running down her cheeks. She walks up to me and she says, Hey, can I give something to you? I have something for you. And I was like, uh, sure. I didn't know what to do. She held her hand out 
I cupped my hands under her hands and she drops a razor blade into my hand. And she said, that's my straight jacket. And I don't want it anymore. And you're the first person to ever make me feel like that there's hope. And then she just turned and walked away. This Someone came around the corner, like one of the adults and was like, hey guys, back to class. I never even got her name. As she turned and walked away, I saw the scars up and down her arms and wrists. And dude, I became obsessed with trying to understand. I was like, okay, I know we're being tricked and deceived. I know these principles of psychology that I'm using in a magic show are being used in other ways to create these different messages. But like, why that? Why to that level? Why? How could someone become so deceived by these lies that they would harm themselves in that way? Because I, I had never thought about doing something like that to myself, even though I had my sure. own lies, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what sent me down the rabbit hole of research. And where I landed was the power that storytellers have. Um, that we don't just use these principles to persuade, but that we create and craft these powerful narratives that we invite people into to try to control the stories that they tell themselves about who they are. Why? To get them to buy the right brand of jeans, to wear the right makeup, um, to drive the right car. It's crazy. And so I thought to myself, if storytellers are that powerful, someone ought to be gathering them together to have a conversation about that collective power. Because not only could we call them to responsibility, because with that power comes great responsibility, but we also might be able to leverage that power to shift the narrative and change the future. And so that's really, uh, that, that started another whole chapter of life and work. That was the beginning of my departure from, it solidified my departure from being an entertainer um, and magician who traveled around and toured around and did magic shows and more of realizing I'm actually a storyteller who happens to know how to do magic tricks. Um, and somehow I want to gather together and build a network of storytellers and then leverage our collective power to change the future of humanity. So that's what I feel like we've been doing. So that was the beginning of story conference. That was, um, at least the beginning for me. And that was five years ago. And so we're coming up on our sixth year of leading the story community and, uh, man, they're doing amazing stuff. It's cool. Well, I I'm obsessed with what you're trying to do. Here's why. Like, I love, I love magic. I love all kinds of art forms. I love all kinds of, of these entertainment forms, right? But what I love as someone who is so, has a deeply vested interest in impacting uh, my world, the people around me in the world, you know, in a larger way and helping other people do that by living a meaningful life and giving a damn. I'm always looking for, hey, I'm, I'm cool if you wanna be entertained and if you wanna feel good about what's happening in life, totally. We need those times, but I feel much better about it when you can mix, for lack of a better term, entertainment, being entertained with something that's going to impact you and help you and, you know, move the needle, right? In your life and the people around you, right? So for example, I'll, you know, I happen upon, you know, whatever, David Blaine, you know, videos on YouTube every once in a while. Fantastic. The guy blows my mind, right? But there's no story attached to it, right? He sits around <laughs> with a bunch of famous people. He does a thing that seems absolutely impossible. I have no way to explain it, but he does it, right? You know, frogs coming out of his throat, all this like crazy stuff. There's no story to it. It just, it's, it's mind blowing. But then I go to what year at story was it that uh, you did the whole fan snow thing? 2016, 17? You know what I'm talking 18, about, right? 18, 18. Yeah. So I show up at story for the first time and you're starting out the event. You're telling the story and you have this like piece of paper that's wet in your hand 
and uh, you know, you crumple it up in your hand. I, I, I forget exactly how the, 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 the trick for lack of a better term evolved, but you're going down the line. All of a sudden you start fanning your hand and, you know, snow, snow starts coming out right out of your hand. And then the fans come on up in the balcony, right. And snow comes down everywhere. And it's this magical moment where it's, it's magic, right. Where it's experiencing this, this trickery before our eyes, but because there's a story attached to it, my heart's beating out of my chest. I'm like, okay, what does this mean for me in life? Like, what am I supposed to take away from me? I don't watch a David Blaine video or any other magician or any other, you know, entertainer. That's like, I can feel good about hearing a great song or watching a great film, but I feel much like I, I, I don't have that much time. I have very little time. I have a family. I have multiple businesses. I have a lot to do. So I'm looking for people that will entertain me, tell me a story, and move the needle in my life all at the same time. And that's what I think you, not I think, I know that you do really well. Like you figured out how to keep, you know, you said you stopped the departure from being an entertainer to now being a storyteller. You're still entertaining people for sure. But now it's in a way that, yeah, people's hearts are beating, right? Like it, now that can also be cheesy. I think you're, you're, you're a person of faith, right? So am I, um, hanging on for dear life, to be honest, but I'm still in it. I grew up in, you know, very conservative evangelicalism. And there was a lot of that, like, there's a cheesy way to tell a story, right? There's a cheesy way to connect the dots, right? Mm-hmm. These, these people that come in and entertain us in churches and whatever, but the story about the straight jacket, right? You at that school and the girl, like you entertained everybody. And I'm sure there were others. It wasn't just that girl. I'm positive. I don't even know the story, the setting, where it was. You said Michigan, I think, but there were others that just didn't have the boldness in that moment. But you, you, you showed them that there were straight jackets in their lives that they also had and they needed to get rid of. So I'm just obsessed with this idea and I'm I'm so excited to be talking about this book and story and solo con and all these things you're doing because I, I I again we're doing different variations of the same thing, but I'm like I don't want to do anything else for the rest of my life, but make stuff that helps people move forward, right? That's it because life's just too too damn short, you know. <laughs> well, and I think that's it, it helped me come back to terms with what magic really is. You know, you said something important to me there um, is that, you know, you, you were, I was performing trickery. I think you called it. And yet your heart was beating out of your chest. Oh yeah. And like that was the magic. And it's so ironic if you really think about it, because people like you call people like me magicians and the stuff that I do on stage is referred to as magic, but deep down we know it's not, it's trickery. They're just illusions. It's totally fake. But yet there are very real things in the world around us that are deeply, truly magical, but yet we are either unaware of it or we look right past it or we desensitized to it. And we roll our eyes in cynicism and think that stuff is either fake or doesn't matter. And it's like, we have, we have things backwards. Why are we calling the fake stuff magic? And why are we looking at the real magic and letting it slip right by us without gripping us in awe and wonder, right? And so I think we need to go back and redefine what magic is again. So the the magic that you experienced in that room when you, when I'm quote unquote made it snow is not because you, it wasn't the trick. It was the story that was told and how it made you feel, right? And to me, if that's magic, 
then it democratizes the idea of who has the ability to perform magic. 100%. That means magic is no longer in the hands of only magicians. It means you get to create magic through your work, through this podcast and all of your other businesses. It means every single person that's listening to us right now, they have the opportunity to help other people step into and experience magic through their own work. Because what I'm doing isn't magic, it's just a trick. But if I'm creating the feeling and sense of magic, if people are experiencing magic through a story, well, all of us as a human being, as human beings have the opportunity to tell stories through our work. Um, and we, I mean, we can get way deep into that, but... Uh, no, you, you just, you tweeted recently about, um, you tweeted this thing about creative, right? This word creative, right? And you said, everyone is creative. Not everyone is an artist, but everyone is creative. Change requires creativity. Solving problems require, requires creativity. Yes. Making art requires creativity too, but so does being open-minded and innovative in our personal and professional lives. If you consider and call yourself a creative and spend any time complaining about things in the world you wish were different, may I suggest pausing to consider why it's fair to be annoyed by the lack of change in others when you feel exclusively entitled to getting creative. And many will say, and this, I love this part because um, I, I think about this all the time and I talk about this all the time in, in, in different ways. Many will say it's just semantics. It's not because the language we use to tell stories to we use tells a story contributing to the narratives that are guiding our thinking and behavior. And if everyone embraced their own unique creativity, instead of thinking creative only belongs to a select few, the world would be a much more beautiful place. And then you ended with this random fact in Tibetan, there's no word for creativity. The closest translation is the word natural. So for Tibetans to be human is to be creative. May our wonder give us permission to believe the same. Let's, Use that Twitter thread to jump into your book. Um, I work, I talk with a lot of people that are in, for lack of a better term, they're in nine to fives, right? And they work these jobs and they want more for themselves. Now, don't hear me, nobody listening, and I know you won't, but nobody listening, don't hear me saying that working a nine to five at Home Depot is a bad thing. There is dignity in that work. Be the best, you know, Home Depot manager that you can be, 100%. I'm not saying that. And we need people to do these various kinds of jobs in society, right? We need people collecting trash and running our governments and working in the schools. Totally. I'm not saying everybody should just like up and leave. But there are, for so for one, People need to see the wonder and the creativity in the work that they do, whether you're a Home Depot manager or whether you stock shelves at Walmart or you're a school teacher for 30 kids that, you know, don't appreciate who you are and you're super underpaid. Or if you're Harris or Nick, you know, telling stories for a living in a variety of different ways. So that's one is like, I want, let's help people today begin to see the wonder in, you know, they're working at discount tire, putting on tires every day. But also, I also want to help. There are people listening right now that know who they are, what they want to do, what they need to do. They're equipped. They're ready. They've been working toward it for years, and they don't want to jump. They don't want to jump out and experience the fullness of their life. Mm. And they're stuck for whatever reason. Bills, you know, this, I get it. School loans and all the pressures of life. But for there's so many people, they're not content for all the right reasons with what they're in, and they know they want more. They know they need more, and they're ready to do it. 
Um, those are the people that I want to help. Both, both people, the people that are going to stay in their nine to five and need to, and need to fit, find the wonder in that, find the beauty in that. But also those, there are people listening that need to jump and they need to jump today. Uh, they need to put in their two weeks because they're ready to go, but they just don't know how, and they don't know how to capture that. Um, and I think that's precisely why you wrote the wonder switch, the difference yeah. between living your life and living your dream. So let's jump into that book. Uh, came out last October, right? Talk mm-hmm. about why you wrote it, for whom you wrote it, and kind of what's been happening since you wrote it. Like, what are the what are, what's the feedback you've gotten since writing it? Whew. Man, you ask questions that could easily turn into like two or three hour long conversations, right? Um, I mean, there's two things you just said there. Um, for, for the people at Home Depot or collecting trash or pushing through in the classroom, um, you know, I don't, I don't think our, our purpose is found in the clock. Um, you know, whether we work from nine to five or different hours doesn't dictate our purpose. I think our purpose is born out of the pain of our past. Mm. And so, so much of it has to do with how do we take what we feel like is a mess in our life and turn that into some sort of message and meaningful work. Mm. Um, And I think everyone has the opportunity to do that, um, regardless of what their vocation is. Um, So there's, there's plenty to discuss there as it ties back to the book. Um, The other thing is, which really is probably a good place to start, which is why did I write the book and what does it have to do with what I just said? I think so much of this is about a journey of belief. Um, I, I wrote the wonder switch because I was heartbroken by the number of people in the world who don't feel like they have permission to believe. And that could believe that belief could be anything, a divine creator, belief in the possibility of their own dream, belief in the possibility of healing in a relationship that feels broken, um, belief in themselves, right? People, people get stuck often because they don't have permission to believe in the possibility of a new story. So let's rewind just a little bit and go back to the word story. Um, You know, even the word story tells us a story, right? Seth Godin had a great blog post. I think it was this morning, actually, where um, I was actually kind of happy about it because he affirmed the Twitter thread that you just talked us through from that I posted yesterday. I read it. I read it this morning and he does. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the word creative that has a story, the word church has a story, the name, whatever, always has a story. And so, um, you know, if you go back to story, we as human beings are storytelling creatures. We are story creatures. We walk around all day long, turning everything into a story in order to make sense of the world, to feel safe, to figure out what happens next. We do this so often that even when we physically sleep at night, we lay in bed, our body is physically asleep. Our brain is staying up all night long, telling ourselves more stories. Yes. And so we are storytelling creatures. And the human imagination is simply like a virtual reality storytelling tool, right? So all day long in your subconscious, which I th- I think I read recently, I, I hesitate to even say this because I'm going to mess it up. But I think it's like, it works 700 times. Your subconscious thinks 700 times faster than your conscious thought. Right. And so your imagination, even outside of your own conscious awareness, is always fast forwarding in every single story that you find yourself in. And it's asking a very curious question What happens next? What happens next in this story? What happens next in this story? Which is why, if you are sitting in the backseat of an Uber and the driver isn't driving safely uh, because they're texting on their phone while driving, when your heart starts beating a little bit faster, your palms get a little sweaty, that is your imagination fast forwarding in the story 
developing an image of what happens next. You don't like that image. So it sends a signal to your nervous system so that you feel fear in your body because it is trying to keep you safe by saying, Hey, notice how you feel right now. This isn't a safe situation. You need to find a safe way out of this car or something bad is going to happen. And so we tell ourselves stories oftentimes to stay safe. The problem is, is that the majority of human beings allow their imaginations somewhere between childhood and adulthood to get hijacked. And essentially we start misusing our imaginations. And so I used to think that imagination was something that was active when we were kids. And then as we grow up, we sort of stop using them or they become less active. But now I understand that fear, worry, anxiety, that consistent fast forwarding in the future, that is that that worry is a misuse of imagination. And I think our imaginations are capable of so much more. So if we can use our imaginations in destructive ways, or we can use our imagination in productive ways to dream, to create, to innovate, what determines what has control of our imagination? And that's what brought me back to wonder, right? I've always been obsessed with wonder as a magician. I've always felt like, I shouldn't say always, in the later part of my career, I have felt somewhat annoyed by the use of magic tricks to simply trick people for the sake of entertainment. You can yep. kind of see some of that pain at turning into purpose, even in my own story that I shared earlier, right? And so because of that, I'm like, what magic is capable of so much more than just like getting one over on somebody or fooling somebody. That feels, that sounds like someone that like does pranks for a living, right? I'm like, I don't want a magician and a prankster to feel like they're equivalent of each other. Magic is something of capable of something so much more beautiful. So in asking that question, I'm like, it's really about wonder. It's about how illusions blur the line between, you know, reality and what isn't reality. And it makes your question, your brain question things and go, wait a second, I didn't think that was possible. What's happening? When you start peeling back the layers and studying the neuroscience, what's happening is your brain is losing its grip on your existing narrative and what you thought was true. And wonder steps in and allows your imagination to become more curious in optimistic, hopeful ways because you start to go, well, I didn't think that was possible, but maybe more is possible than I realize. Hmm. I didn't think you could do that with a rubber band or a table or a chair or a ball or a coin or whatever. But now that I just saw what I just saw, I mean, seeing clearly is not believing. So now my beliefs are getting challenged and that is beginning to change what I see. And so I've, I've started thinking of wonder as, you know, being in a state of wonder gives us permission to believe in a story that we have yet to see. And most human beings do not live this way. So the reason why I wrote the wonder switch is to help people understand through these different principles that make magic tricks possible, that what you see is not always what you get, that you as a storytelling creature are walking around all day long, telling yourself stories that are rooted in the narrative that you have adopted to be true. And the narrative that's driving all of your thinking and choices and behavior has some lies in it. It's not all built on reality and truth. And so we have to correct those lies so that you get out of thinking, seeing is believing Otherwise, you're going to continue to tell yourself untrue stories like yep. I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. I don't belong, right? And it'll help you to understand that in the presence of wonder, you can actually find the permission that your brain needs to start believing in the possibility of a new story. And when that happens, we can start to restore the broken parts of your narrative 
And that leads to actual tangible, practical changes in your life, your thinking, your belief systems, your behavior. Seeing is not believing, but believing is seeing because what we believe has the power to change what we see. So why don't we just believe? Because we don't have permission to believe. But yet when we're in a state of wonder, we have more permission to believe. So it comes to do with how do we cultivate a life of wonder? That's really what the book is about. When you, a couple minutes ago, you talked about even this term childlike wonder, right? Mm -hmm. I guess the goal of your life's work is for it not to be childlike wonder, but human wonder, right? Yeah. The goal is yeah. to help, to help adults rediscover that wonder and also help. I mean, I hope that part of the, you know, eventual trajectory of your work, and maybe it's already happening in different ways. I know you talk a lot to leaders and, you know, grownups, but like I, so, so in, in my work with let's give a damn, I started, let's give a damn. And basically I see my full-time job right now as helping adults, grown ass adults unlearn a bunch of stuff that they learned over the years, right? Uh, all these lies and all these, uh, things that have kept them from believing that they can change their world, not the world. That's a, that's an unattainable thing. You know, I think it's, it's, it's helpful to help people see things properly, right? You can change focus on changing your world first, right? Your, your, the people around you, the places around you, right? But it's helping people rediscover that, that you can make a difference in little ways and in, in big ways, right? But the ultimate goal, when I started this, I started having parents come to me and say, hey, Nick, um, you need to figure out how to, you know, uh, uh, tailor this let's give a damn message and idea for kids. Because ideally, they get this when they're younger, and they don't give in to all the lies of growing up and life is hard and, and all those things are true, but like, it's all, you know, like you said, it's, be, be, uh, believing is seeing, um, it's, it's, it's a lot of it's in our head. It's in our mind. It's in how, how we see things as we grow up. And so I want my kids to not go through all the pain and trauma that I went through to finally get to my, you know, twenties and thirties and realize, oh, I can do a lot more than I think that I'm capable of. I can do a lot more than my parents told me I was capable of or the people that were around me or my just surroundings, right? So how do we, first of all, so I'm, I'm getting somewhere. One, one question is what, what makes us lose our wonder as children, right? Because kids just imagine and believe anything. They believe everything, not anything. They believe everything. And it's so easy to get, I mean, my kids, we just, all day long, we're creating scenarios and worlds and ideas, and they just go along with it and they love it. And I love that. So what are, what are the kinds of things that keep that, uh, keep us from doing that as we grow up teenagers, you know, and then adults. And then also, yeah. How do we, how do people that you're in my age with our kids, how do we talk to our kids this way? How do we help our kids never lose it in the first place? Maybe that's impossible but I don't think so. I, I don't want to believe that that's impossible. They could just like always have that wonder, that human wonder, sure. not childlike wonder. Once again, there's so much there to unpack. <laughs> um, you know, we, we get nervous about returning to childlike states and childlike things and childlike play, more childlike imagination because it feels childish. And there is a difference between what is childish and childlike. And so everything in the world around us in the narrative, the mass narrative is saying, hey, grow up, be a man, mm -hmm. toughen up, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, but it's really about identifying what our wonder wound was. To answer your question more directly, we lose the magic in our childhood when the magic is robbed, when we become desensitized to the magic because the pain is too feels bigger than mm. the magic does. So in short, it's trauma, right? Um, but relationships are magical. Love is magical. But as you grow up and you experience a broken relationship, you're like, oh, oh the magic that I felt and the love wasn't there. Um, and so the story that you tell yourself about love, love, the place that love holds in your narrative gets shattered, right? Does that mean that love is no longer magical? No, it just, the magic got robbed from your experience of love as a result of the trauma that you experienced. And so, you know, I think a lot of this is about how do we unlearn? Um, how do we heal from the wonder wounds? That's that beautiful Paulo Coelho quote where he talks about, you know, the journey is not really to become yep. more than we currently are. It's about unbecoming everything that isn't really meant to be you in the first place. Wow. Um, it's about a return to that child likeness while letting go of the childishness. Um, yeah. I mean, I could talk about that for hours, but that's the short answer to your question. <laughs> it's the, it's the, it's the slightly more in-depth answer that isn't just, well, trauma. No, and, and the, I, I mean, I obviously would love to talk to you for forever and a day, but I also want, I want to give people enough. I want to wet their, wet their whistle <laughs> enough to like go buy the book, which we'll, you know, we'll definitely push. So how do we, so let's, so our reality right now is there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world. Not right now, throughout the, the entirety of history. There's, in fact, we're we're better off than any other time in history, right? In terms of you know whether it's infant mortality or you know poverty, like we're better off. But there's still so much, right? The what what we had was things are getting way better, but now we know too much, right? We have more access. We have access to more information than anyone in the history of ever has ever had, right? At the tip of sure. our fingers, we open our phone and boom, it's all there. So yeah. we know more and we're feeling it. How do we, these are hard times. I mean, the whole, I mean, we've got this uh, still loud, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, which it should be. We've got all this racial tension. We've got leaders in in government that are not, that are acting. And I don't use this as a derogatory thing because I love my kids and how they act, but like they're acting like children, even though we're paying them adult salaries and asking them to do big and hard things. They're not, they're not working together. Well, it's what I was uh, just talking about. It's child, it's childish. There's a, again, you can look right, at there you go. Who's yeah, yeah, childish. That's um, and there's a difference between that childish behavior and childlike behavior. And childlike. Yeah, no, that's a great distinction. I'm going to, I'm going to try to, uh, uh, incorporate that into how I think, because I never, I always think that way, right? I have these kids that are amazing and I love them. And I'm like, I never want to compare, you know, a Donald Trump to my, my kid who's just amazing and who loves people, <laughs> right? Like, I don't want to do that. So I like that distinction of childish and childlike. So we've got all these things going on now, this pandemic, right? So much suffering, so much pain. And yet there is so much beauty and so much wonder and so much awe and really focusing on the pain and the suffering and all the, the craziness going on in the world isn't going to help us create and make and do better things, right? It's when we focus on the wonder, like some good things come out of pain, right? Again, the Black Lives Matter was born out of tragedy and we can, we, we need th those ideas and those movements to continue to grow and to, you know, uh, affect change in our society and our culture. But most long-term things come out of the, the wonder, at least in my experience, come out of the wonder and the beauty. So how do we, Harris, help me, you are a positive guy, right? There's, there's people in my life that I look to for, that I know I can always go to for 
you know, the, 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 the positive perspective on things, not a fake positive, not a conjured up positive, like a real positive Brad Montague, you referenced them earlier. Uh, amazing individual. You, like you got these, like, um, I mean, I think it's why people still love Fred Rogers. May he rest in peace. Like, like we've, we need these, we need these hopeful people in our lives. I'm not naturally like that. I am very hopeful, but I'm also a hardcore Enneagram eight which means I want to burn everything that's bad to the ground and I'll let somebody else build it up. But I just want to like get rid of the bad stuff. Right. I'm a challenger, a protector. So I'm not my first, my first instinct is not to go to positivity. My first thing is not to go to awe and wonder it's to Holy shit. There's so many terrible things in the world. I got to go fix everything. Right. How do we hold those two things in tension? Bad, evil, horrible things happening, immoral things happening to people that we love, people that we don't know, but we do love as well, the, the marginalized peoples. And there's still so much amazing beauty in the world. Like there's still so much to just, I was listening to one of my favorite Brahms pieces last night, one of my favorite movements. And I just was overwhelmed. I'm sitting in my office, 1230 in the morning, working away, listening to this piece. And I just felt like there was nothing else in the world that mattered in that moment. I'm listening to this piece of music and it's just, just crushing me in the best of ways. So how do we hold all of this intention? I mean, the short answer is that by understanding that there is beauty in the brokenness, um, that pain can always be turned into purpose. Um, that what feels like a mess can become your greatest message. And I know those, those have a tendency to sound like pithy quotes that make you roll your eyes, but the thing that's making you makes people roll their eyes in response to ideas like that is simply cynicism. And sure. cynicism says, yeah, right. I'll believe in that when I see it. And so mm. cynicism says, burn it all down because nothing that you're saying is possible. Right. And so we need the hope and the possibility and the permission to believe in it so that we can remain expectant to keep us out of that cynical state that says, oh, I'll believe it when I see it. Instead, we have to go, okay, I can't see it right now, but I'm going to choose to believe. And it's easier to choose to believe when it feels like it's easy to believe and you have permission to believe, which is why we must stay in that state of wonder. So how do we stay in state in that state of wonder? By staying aware of the magic that is all around us. Roald Dahl famously said, those who don't believe in magic will never find it. It affirms what I'm talking about. A lot of people will say, well, I don't see any magic. So you show me some magic and then I'll believe in it. Well, mm. if the magic is already there. The problem, the problem with your inability to see it is because you don't believe in it first. And so again, we have to take a journey of belief. We have to choose to believe. But how do we do that? Well, we need, sometimes we just need a spark. You know, that music, that piece that you listened to last night, that's a spark. That's a piece of magic that left you in awe. And scientists are now studying all oh, UC Berkeley, especially science for greater good and our center for greater good, something like that. They they're doing amazing studies on awe. they're, they're realizing that you being in a positive state of awe and wonder decreases chronic inflammation in your body. It can open you up emotionally to other people and help you empathize and connect with other people on a heart level. Um, there's starting to be some hints of research that show that us being in a state of wonder can boost our immune systems. Um, wow. decrease stress, open us up to new narratives, which is what I've been saying for a while. Um, so if you think about the presence of awe among politicians, 
or the presence of awe in the criminal justice system. Imagine the role, if, if wonder and awe creates a sense of open-mindedness to a new narrative, how would that change the way that people who are sitting on the bench and determining, um, you know, the verdict in someone's case, how, how might that influence and influence like their decision-making process if they come in completely open-minded as opposed to holding on to their existing narrative about the person that walks into the courtroom? You know, if, if a presence of a positive awe state, if presence and wonder can change the physiology in our bodies to the point where it can decrease chronic inflammation, boost our immune system, why are hospital rooms, especially children's hospital rooms, why is everything in that room not designed to keep us in a state of awe and wonder? Wow. But instead we're putting these cheap gowns that make, make us feel weird. And there's no, they're not listening to that piece of music that you listened to last night. They're listening to beeps and sounds of machines and movement. Like why not give them a song, a soundtrack that leaves them in awe? Why not design the colors of the room instead of feeling so sterile to invoke their childlike imagination? Why not let them play to the extent that their body is capable of playing? So, you know, it really just comes down to how do we heal the wonder wound? What's, what's wounding our wonder? What's robbing us of the magic and how do we get it back? Uh, and if it's been robbed, then the journey back to wonder, the journey back to finding the permission that you need to believe really has to do with healing. What was the trauma that broke the narrative and how do we restore it? Yeah, it's so powerful. Like, right, hurt people, hurt people and healed people, heal people. And, and we, so are, we are hurt in community, which means we are healed in community. Yep. Like your, your pain though you might experience remnants of pain alone, but the pain that you've experienced in your life is the result of trauma that you experienced in relationship, which means that your only way to heal is not to sit in a room by yourself, but to heal in community and relationship. And as our adult, you know, as we grow up in more pressures and more things in life, we see it as more impossible as the years go by to go back and do some of that healing work, right? Yeah. And it's hard work. And it takes time and it takes community and it takes hard conversations and it takes therapy and it takes so many things that we just don't have time for. Right. And so we, but what we don't see is that the longer that we put it off, the more hurt we get, the more hurt we hurt, the more times we hurt those around us. And sure. the more, the, the more compounding that hurt becomes, we become more complexly complexively hurt, whatever that word is. Like we become more, yeah, we just become more hurt in that. And it just it compounds. Right. And, um, man, I love that so much. I love that so much. And so let's, let's focus in for the last part of our conversation on this idea of hurting and healing and community, uh, by talking about, we've talked about your book. We talked a little bit about story conference, the story gatherings, but I want to talk about this new thing that you're working on, which I think this will help us kind of Taya is much of a neat little bow on this conversation because again, we could do so much more. Maybe we'll do it another time. But this solo con that you're doing, um, this new global community of solopreneurs who are changing the future through purpose-driven work. You you tweeted something the other, or you Instagram something the other day that I just love. I'm gonna think about it uh forever and ever, probably. But flying solo is a myth. This applies to people that are creating stuff, but it also just applies to life. Right? It applies to all parts of our lives. Flying solo is a myth. And we are going to heal faster. And we're going to do more. And we're going to do better. 
uh, in community. So talk about this idea of, I mean, and you and I talked, I think before, the, I think it was before the recording about the kind of work that we do. We basically, we have little teams around us and we have people that do stuff with us, but we're as, as society would call us solopreneurs. We're just going at it alone. Like all of my companies and projects have my name on it at this point. And it's like, I just, you know, nobody else is telling me to start it and nobody's stopping me. So I'm just going to go ahead and do it. So yeah, it's, and it's hard. I, I long, I long to be around more people to do stuff with, and I crave that. Um, so let's, let's talk about that for the last few minutes. How do we, what is, what is SoloCon really about? What's the heart behind it? And let's dive into that for a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, much, much like story, you know, I, story is what it is today because not the only reason, but one of the reasons it is what it is today is because I was trying to curate the conference that I felt like I needed as a storyteller that I couldn't find. Um, mm. And SoloCon is really the same. It's the conference for solopreneurs like me that I need because I'm working far too often in isolation. Um, and so I'm going to create it because I don't feel like I'm alone in that need. Um, you know, and a lot of it came down to the story that I think words have, which is kind of a fun way to bring this conversation full circle. I think it's one of the places we started, but you know, there's there's sort of two words out there to describe the paths outside of the world of nonprofits, I should say, is the right. caveat. So it's it's like, are you a freelancer or you're an entrepreneur? And everyone wants to call themselves entrepreneurs these days. I don't know why. I guess it sounds sexier. Like everyone seems like, oh, he's an entrepreneur, she's an entrepreneur. And yet if you if you are if there's a very different path associated with being yep. a freelancer compared to being an entrepreneur. And there's, I just, I just annoyed by the, like, don't call yourself an entrepreneur if you're not one, not because you're trying to sound cooler, but it's going to hold you back from getting the resources and following the proper path that you need to follow to achieve what it is that you feel called to do. And so to me, freelancers find joy and meaning in their craft, right? Maybe you're a graphic designer and you're like, I just love the graphic design. Um, it doesn't matter if I'm doing graphic design for Joey's flooring company or Susan's ice cream shop. Um, I may not be as passionate about ice cream as she is, but it doesn't matter. I love graphic design and she seems like an awesome lady. And so I'm just going to do that. Um, the, the other thing about freelancers from an entrepreneurial perspective, from a business perspective, is they get to work on their own schedule. They set their own hours and they're exchanging their hours for income, right? Yep. People like me are their mindset is slightly different. Again, it's not better. It's just different in the sense that it's not always about the specific craft that I'm performing. It's about the message that I'm trying to share. And by that, I don't just mean as a speaker or an author in a traditional sense of delivering a message or a communicator. It's that I have some sort of pain in my past that I experienced. And I don't want other people to have to go through what I went through. And if they have, I want to help them heal the way that I have healed. And as a result, I have chosen commerce, a business, as my vehicle for creating the future in the world that I want to create. Mm. Um, and so if I go, okay, great. So you're not a freelancer, you're an entrepreneur then. If I subscribe to Entrepreneur Magazine and join a community of entrepreneurs or a network of entrepreneurs, and I go to a conference for entrepreneurs, I immediately have to take at least half of what they are teaching me and discard it because it's not relevant to the path that I have chosen. Because they go, oh, you want to scale and you don't, you're not interested in scaling and like you don't have an exit strategy. You're not building something that you're going to sell to someone else. You're not going to go public. Like you're not really a founder or an entrepreneur. Like you should go to the freelancers conference. And so I've always sort of felt trapped in between these two worlds. 
And when a buddy said, oh, you're a solopreneur, I was like, that's interesting. I Google it. Well, all the definitions of a solopreneur are people who work alone or people who are freelancers who don't have a team. And I'm like, well, I'm not that either. Right, right. But I got so annoyed. I was like, you know what? Instead of feeling like that isn't me, what if I just reclaimed that word and reinvented and redefined it? And so that's sort of what I'm on a mission to do because I don't think I'm alone in the process of trying to build um, a company that is, is rooted in building a brand that is so much bigger than me. It, so yes, I am scaling to the sense of this, this gets to grow far beyond me, far beyond what hours I have available in a day. Um, but like my name and face is still on this thing, not yep. because I'm selfish or want to be in the spotlight, but because it is uniquely rooted in my pain from my past. Yep. This is my purpose and I'm not interested in selling it. I can't sell Harris the third. I am Harris the third. Like I can't develop an exit strategy if the reason I founded this company to begin with was to add meaning and purpose back into my work. And so why would I ever part ways with it until my life here is, is over, right? Mm -hmm. So there's too many people who feel the same way, but yet because of the idea of being a solopreneur, because you are the brand, I think are end up, end up feeling trapped in isolation and they feel like they can't scale, they can't grow a team. But I think having a team doesn't disqualify you from being a solopreneur because flying solo is a myth. A pilot who flies solo, someone still built the plane. And you sure as hell better hope that there's someone in a tower on a headset if it gets cloudy or it's nighttime, who's going to help you land from the tower, right? A solo artist, the people we call solo artists, they're usually surrounded by musicians on stage with them. And even if they're not and they're singing to tracks or something, or they're a singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar, yep. there's someone at a soundboard, there's 100%. someone who built the guitar, there's an audience they're co-creating that live experience with. So I, I don't know, I got frustrated enough. I'm like, I think, I think we need to craft a new narrative around what it means to be a solopreneur. And so we're I, gonna build a community of solopreneurs and do an annual conference style gathering called SoloCon. I love this conversation. I love this idea. I too have struggled through the same exact thing in my head where I have gone through seasons where I've called myself an entrepreneur, um, but solopreneur makes more sense, but there are, but I've, I mean, it's, 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 there's a lot of parallels between what you just said and what I'm going through personally. Like this whole, let's give a damn thing is tied to me. Um, it, I didn't think that it was that original or unique when I started it, but if you Google, let's give a damn, it's all, it's all my stuff for pages on Google. Like I didn't do that. That was accident that that is the way this thing has evolved. So it's intricately tied to who I am. And I've been struggling through, not really struggling. That's a bad word, but it's like, how, what do I, what, what things that I am building, can I give away and how do I give it away and who do I bring into it? Right. It's hard because it's still like my, this is my passion. This is my, what I think that I'm built to do and what I'm going to be doing for a long, long time. But I, I know full well that I can't go at it alone. I am, you know, working way too hard right now. And I'm trying to find different people to bring into my circle to help me take this thing to the next level, but there's still that struggle of like, how much of who I am, do I give away? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, who do yeah, I know exactly I've, what you're saying? I've got, I've got all these trademarks and all these companies. And it's like, how do I, how do I build this thing in a way that brings the right people into it? Cause you're so right. This, one of my least favorite things when people talk about, you know, specifically about money, um, they're a self-made millionaire or a self-made billionaire. And I'm like, no, they're not. Nobody, not a person on this planet is self-made. 
There are 1 million people along the way that helped that millionaire become a millionaire. The word self-made should never be put on anybody, whether you're talking about money or a business, because I I love the idea of, yeah, a singer-songwriter gets up there. There are 100 people that went into making that night happen. The bartender, the people showing up, the person who made the guitar, the chair, the microphone. Like There are so many people that, that were involved in making it possible for that person to get up there and sing their song and play their music. But right? yeah, correct. But yet, even though they are aware of that, even if they are a solo artist with humility, they don't feel shame by being called, oh, you're a solo artist. And yet I would imagine if you're anything like me, if someone says, oh, you're a solopreneur, there's, it may not, shame may not be the first word that comes to mind, but there's this sense of like, oh no, man, like this isn't, this isn't about me. Like I'm not the only one. There's a whole team behind this thing. There's almost like this immediate need to apologize or explain yourself, which then I think is what, what creates that sort of subconscious pressure we feel to be like, oh no, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm trying to like build something big. It's not just about me. And so I want to reclaim the word solopreneur and strip the shame from it. Um, and maybe even strip the idea of being an entrepreneur of some of its sexiness so that we also simultaneously don't feel this temptation to be like, oh, but I want to call myself an entrepreneur because I don't want people to be like, oh, you're a solopreneur. Oh, that's a bummer. I thought you were an entrepreneur. It's like, I thought you were ready to play in the big leagues. Like solopreneur is not a downgrade. They're the most purposeful, meaning-driven entrepreneurs on the planet. They are a type of entrepreneur. They're a class of entrepreneur. Uh, they're not the same, but we're in the same category. And hopefully we can change that. I love that so much, man. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I will, <laughs> I will, I will be part April of April 22nd, Con. April 23rd, man. We haven't, we haven't even unveiled it. Everything's done. Like all the work is done. The conference programming is, uh, it's just not live. So by the time people hear this episode, it will be live, but yeah, solocon.com. Um, and then we're excited on the heels of Solocon, which is again happening April 22nd, 23rd. We hope to continue building this community of solopreneurs. And I think we're just going to call it Solocon Valley. So if you come be a oh member God. of the Valley. I love that. Uh, yeah. I love that so cool. much. Who are you? <laughs> let's let's wrap up with this. Who are you? So you're out there giving, 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 right? Um, and you're creating and you're making and you're bringing people into the fold. But who who's taking care of Harris? Like, who are you learning from? Who are you gleaning from? Who is... Who are the people, places, and things that are teaching you physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, all of that? How are you growing during this season of life? Oh, man, through friends and mentors. Uh, You know, Seth Godin has been an amazing mentor of mine from afar through his blog. Um, When I sent him a copy of my book, um, I had no idea what to expect. And he emailed back uh, with not only with an endorsement, I didn't even make it to the endorsement because I was sitting at the bar in my kitchen. And I, I was like, oh my gosh. And I started crying. And my wife, Kate, was like, what's wrong? And I was like, Seth Godin just sent me an endorsement for my book. And he was, he was like, what did it say? I was like, I don't know. I didn't read it yet. He's like, then why are you crying? And I was like, the first line was just, Harris, um, I got your book. I just read it. I'm blown away by this. Um, and so that was the foray into me being able to ask him some more questions. And um, the combination of that with the... Uh, with just his daily blog and his books, he's been a big mentor and shaped a lot about how I see the world. Uh, on a more relational perspective, my friend Ken Black is probably the strongest mentor in my life right now. He mm-hmm. used to be the VP of Design Future at Nike, um, left Nike to go start uh, a company, sold that company back to Nike, did another stint at Nike, 
but has worked on everything from, you know, Jordan stuff within Nike to the Olympics and, um, is now a chief creative officer for a while at a creative agency. Um, and I, I don't, who knows what he's going to do next, but he's been a huge source of inspiration and guidance for me. And then all these story speakers, you know, my story family, Brad Montague, Jillian Farabee from Cirque du Soleil. Um, they teach me in ways that I think they are not even aware of, you know, um, I, I think almost on a weekly basis and Brad doesn't even know this. Um, but we were standing backstage at story one year and actually I think it was 2018, the year where you were talking about, and there was a highlight video playing and he was about, we were about to go on stage together to close out the conference. Um, and he looks over at me and he says, Harris, you did it again, buddy. And I said, did what? And he goes, look out there, man, all those lives that you've impacted over the last two days. I was like, Oh, Brad, man, there's still so much to do. And he looks at me and in the exact words, I can hear his tone of voice. He just goes, Oh buddy. And gave me this huge hug and just embraced me and hugged me. And I started bawling. Um, and I think about that conversation almost weekly because I'm trying to remind myself like Harris, you don't have to do it all. You don't have to fix all of the world's problems and you can't, even if you wanted to, you can't like it's impossible. And so instead of always, you know, instead of feeling the temptation to like step in and raise your hand and be like, I'm the one who can fix that to instead focus on building communities of people and then releasing them to take that vision and go out in the world and change the future of humanity as storytellers, as solopreneurs, as entrepreneurs, as freelancers, as whatever they are. Um, because yes, I feel this constant burden that there is so much to change and there is so much to do, but I can't do it alone. And to rest in being aware to live and work with the awareness of the impact that I am having, because that impact can serve as fuel um, for me to keep doing what I'm doing. Mm. So people like, I mean, simple things like that, little exchanges backstage, um, you know, Brad, have no idea the impact. Brad is the closest thing that I know to a real life angel. Like <laughs> I, I cry on a regular basis, just looking at a Instagram post from him. Yeah. Like yeah. it just floors me like his brain and his heart. It's his it's as big as the world. I love it so much. Mm -hmm. Harris, the third, uh, Harris, I, I, I.com, right. That's your website. People can find yeah. out about all the things. I mean, there's just so much it's going on name. solo con and story <laughs> gatherings and all the stuff that you're doing. Um, man, I think the world of you, uh, please keep, keep helping people because it is helping people. It's helped me from afar, um, up close and afar. And, um, yeah, I'm excited to share your story and what you're doing with the let's give a damn family. So thanks for joining. Man, it's my pleasure. I'm I'm trying really hard. I've not done it perfectly. Made some mistakes, had some shortfalls, done a lot of work and healing, and uh, I'm gonna keep going. We're gonna continue to learn and push forward and change change the future. Dear friends, thank you so much for spending some time with Harris and me today. Go purchase the Wonder Switch from your local bookstore and visit harristhe3rd.com, harrisiii.com to learn more about everything Harris is up to and everything he is creating and will continue to create. And please visit letsgiveadam.com to learn more about what we're up to and what we're building and how you can get involved. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I'm so grateful that so many of you show up week after week after week to listen to these meaningful conversations. 
This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. The music is by our friend Propaganda. And please remember, you can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.